Well, we are in Jeremiah, of course, we are now, I think this is session 16, maybe beyond that. We have been in chapter 15 for two weeks. We're going to wrap up chapter 15 this evening, and chapter 16 is, is, can be treated as a narrative, and we can get through chapter 16 in just a matter of maybe 10 minutes. Now, whether that happens or not, I don't know. We'll see. We have good intentions as we get started, so we hope to wrap up chapter 15 tonight and get through chapter 16, but until the rapture comes, we'll be here every Wednesday, so we'll just continue to work our way through, and we'll stop uh, when we run out of time this evening. Of course, Jeremiah is one of the four considered major prophets. Three of them were contemporaries of one another, with Jeremiah being the senior of the four, and as you all are well aware, none of the prophets or more important than the others, all of them did the work that God had called them to do. Now, we have historically called Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah the major prophets. Again, three of these guys were contemporaries. Isaiah lived about a hundred years before they did, but uh, Zechariah sometime is included in, in the list as is expanded from four to five. But, but three of these guys were contemporaries. And again, Jeremiah spent his entire four decades of ministry in Jerusalem preaching to disobedient, rebellious Jews in Jerusalem and in Judah and Benjamin. Then you've got a contemporary named Daniel, who is actually a junior to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the oldest of these three. And Daniel was taken captive in the first surrender of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar in 606 B.C. The city was not destroyed, but they surrendered. And Nebuchadnezzar assumed power over this area that we would call the Holy Land, we would call Israel. He was, in fact, the king of kings as he had conquered all these uh, nations and they were subservient and paying tribute to him. They rebelled and stopped paying taxes after 11 years or actually prior to that, but 11 years and Nebuchadnezzar marshaled his forces and came back down to regain control of this rebellious area named Judah. And again, uh, Jerusalem surrendered without a fight The city was not destroyed, but in this second captivity of Jerusalem is when uh, Ezekiel was taken captive. As you see up on the map, Ezekiel wound up ministering in a city called Tel Aviv, and it was a refugee community of Jews. And then throughout this entire time, Jeremiah was inside the walls of the city, and eventually after another rebellion, quitting paying tribute, Uh, Eventually, the city was destroyed after basically, what, 29 years from the first siege to the final siege. And Jeremiah, we would say, had a fruitless ministry. Uh, By according to God's standards, it was fruitful because he did exactly what God called him to do. But you didn't see the results that we would like to see. We would have loved to have seen a Nineveh-like repentance and restoration. But that wasn't what happened. Jeremiah had the pain of preaching to his people, being hated by his people, being accused of acts of treason because he was telling them that they were going to be conquered if they didn't surrender or didn't submit, repent. And then he, the message changed it. No, that's too late. You are going to be conquered uh, by the Babylonians. Just get ready and surrender. Well, that was considered a treasonous statement, and he was hated by everyone, but ultimately that's exactly what happened. On the map, you can kind of see the uh, picture of the four decades of Jeremiah's ministry through five different kings. He actually preached for half of Josiah's reign, 
And this was what we would consider the Reagan years. We would consider this a, a we, from the outside, we would have said, hey, this is a wonderful period of time. But obviously, as we see in our study, the people were not repentant. The people were still involved in idol worship in their hearts. Uh, Josiah may have been a sincere, true king seeking the favor of yad heh but the people as a whole were not. After his death, you had a short reign of one son, Jehoahaz. Then Jehoiakim was put on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar. But Jehoiakim rebelled and stopped paying tribute. He died shortly before the Babylonians got back down to regain control. His son, Jeconiah, sometimes called Coniah, also called Jehoiachin, was only on the throne for about three months. He was 18 years old, and he was taken captive and went back and served out his days as a subject uh, enslaved in Babylon. And his uncle, Zedekiah, was put on the throne after he was taken captive. He served for about 11 years. And, of course, at this period of time, uh, Jerusalem just continued to erode. Uh, the, the city was surrounded by the Babylonian army, laid siege to for a year plus, and the people literally starved, and the city was eventually destroyed. The temple burned, and the remnant was taken captive or was just left at that point in time to fend for themselves. We're going to pick up, and by the way, we don't know exactly. Jeremiah is not like Ezekiel. It's not laid out in chronological order. It's a compilation of, of, of episodes of Jeremiah's ministry. And tonight we aren't exactly sure where chapter 15 takes place. It could actually uh, take place. Let me get this turned on. There is some thought that it took place toward the tail end of Jehoiakim's reign. There are other theologians that think it took place right down here at the tail end of Zedekiah's reign. I lean more towards this area. Nevertheless, it is what it is, and we find that Jeremiah is in a state of great, great depression. Verse 10 of chapter 15, we are reminded that ministry is not easy. And we are reminded and in some ways encouraged that even some of the greatest men of God in biblical history and throughout God's history and Christian history, I say that basically going back 2,000 years when I say Christian history, but great men of God have suffered depression, they've suffered fear, they've suffered discouragement, some even to the point of, of wanting God to take their lives where they had literally come to the point that almost lost all hope and were just ready to give it up. Uh, we see Moses at that point, uh, ready for God just to take his life and say, I, I can't handle the job. It's too much for me. We see Ezekiel literally being so mad at his situation that rather than serving as a priest in Jerusalem, here he was in captivity. God calls him to be a prophet to this disobedient people. He didn't want any part of the job, but he was mad. Uh, if you read the early chapters of Ezekiel, about his whole situation and calling. You see Elijah, so discouraged, just a week within days after calling down fire from on Mount Carmel, so discouraged that he was ready for God to take his life, thinking that he had failed and, and was ready to give up and that he was the only one left standing for Yahweh in, in the northern kingdom. You see, Jonah so upset that God had spared Nineveh but didn't spare his gourd that he was just mad at God and also saying, I can't do this anymore, just take me on. Peter was so discouraged from his failing at a, at a crisis moment the night of Jesus' arrest when Peter denied the Lord three times that he 
chucked the ministry and went back to fishing. We read that men like Charles Spurgeon went through great bouts of depression. Uh, Charles Spurgeon called the Prince of Preachers, uh, pastor there in the heart of, of Britain in London, the London Tabernacle. We read that Martin Luther, uh, one of the great leaders of the Reformation, had great periods of despondency. So in some ways, we recognize, ladies and gentlemen, that life is tough. And even as Christians, it's tough. Sometimes it's tougher as Christians. Nevertheless, we have a job to do, and we can't fail to do what God has called us to do, as we are going to see as we go through the rest of of chapter 15. But here, Jeremiah is in such depression that he was literally wishing he had never been born. And not understanding why he was facing all this, here he was, right in the middle of God's will, doing exactly what God called him to do. He didn't volunteer for the job. God called him. He said, yes, here he is, and he is absolutely miserable. He's alone. Everyone hates him, and he is despondent. We jump forward to verse 16. This is somewhat review before we get back into the meat of our subject that we were in the middle of last week when we quit. And Jeremiah was faithfully preaching God's Word. We see this idiom of eating God, the scroll of, from God is basically idiomatic of faithfully absorbing God's Word and then preaching God's Word, which is what Jeremiah was in fact doing. We see a similar reference to Ezekiel who consumed this scroll that God gave to him. And we see the final uh, statement in these couple of verses here, what Ezekiel, or what Ezekiel did once he had assimilated uh, God's, the Word of God into his heart as he went and spoke God's words to the entire house of Israel. We see the same thing referenced to John the Revelator as he also consumed this little scroll, this Word of God given to John for what purpose? to prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So verse 16, we see that Jeremiah had received God's Word, had consumed God's Word, and was now presenting it uh, as God's spokesperson, which is what a prophet was. A priest made intercession to God on behalf of man. A prophet spoke the Word of God to man. So that was his job. He was faithfully doing what called God and called him to do. And because of it, again, because of his obedience, because of this job, he was alone. It wasn't because he wanted to be. No doubt, Jewish are very social people. They're very much like Baptists. You know, we love to eat and fellowship and talk and, and disagree and fight over things. We come by it naturally. How the root is, so, is, so are the branches, I guess. Uh, and again, he was hated, not because he didn't love his country or love his people, but the people hated the message that he was bringing. And he was faithful to reprove the people of their sin and calling them to repentance. And he wanted nothing more than to see his own countrymen and his own country, as he was a patriot, repent and turn to God and not go through this harsh punishment that they were about to to face. In Jeremiah, notice verse 18, uh, he says, I hurt all over. My pain is perpetual. God, I don't understand this. I'm right in the middle of your will. I'm doing exactly what you called me to do. Why do I hurt so much? And here he was, faithful to do what God had called him to do. And again, he didn't want the job. He didn't volunteer for it. God called him. And 
Jeremiah, in his mind, was recalling the account of chapter 1, where God said, don't worry, you won't be defeated. Jeremiah, in his point of discouragement and despair right now, actually makes the accusation, God, did you mislead me? We see there at the bottom part of verse 18, he actually, the KJV uses this term, uh, were you unto me as a liar? That's not calling God a liar, but it is insinuating, God, did you shoot straight with me? Were you completely honest with me? This, ladies and gentlemen, is a liar. This is standing on top of Mount Carmel, looking out east over the Jezreel Valley. And this right there was what we would call a wadi, what Jeremiah is referencing as a liar. It looks like a brook of water, but it is not spring-fed. It is basically what we might refer to as a drainage ditch. During the rainy season, this would be full of water. If it snowed in the mountains uh, and, and the snow melted, this would have water in it. And if you were coming up to it at a distance during the wrong time of the year, you would see it and you'd say, oh, there's water up ahead. I, I can't wait to get a drink when I get there, only to be greatly disappointed once you did get there, finding it was nothing, uh, there was no relief there, there was no comfort there, it was simply a dry ditch. And Jeremiah made this accusation. God, I'm doing what you called me to do. I'm miserable. Everybody hates me. I'm all by myself. I've been kicked out of synagogue. Nobody wants to associate with me. My family hates me. The kings hate me. The other priests hate me. The, the, uh, the other false prophets, the false prophets hate me. The people don't like me. Lord, did you mislead me in all of this? Verse 19, therefore, thus saith the Lord. By the way, if you're expecting a tender response from the heavenly father as if he was going to take Jeremiah up on his knee and hug him and console him, you're going to be disappointed. Therefore, thus saith the Lord. And notice in the KJV, every time it uses the unpronounceable name of God, the Hebrew letters, Yod, He, Vav, He. The Jews to this day do not know exactly how it's properly pronounced. Um, And therefore, they will not utter it. If you read a text or read a statement on a Jewish website, it will have the letters G-D, and that references God's name without using or invoking God's name. Uh, They will substitute the word Hashem, the name, in place of yad heh vav They will substitute the name Adonai, Lord, in place of yad heh vav But this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, if you will repent, Jeremiah. Now, think about this. Jeremiah has done exactly what God has called him to do. He has been faithful. He has basically all of his hopes and dreams gone by the wayside. He's doing what God has called him to do. God says, no, Jeremiah, you've got to repent. Then I will bring thee again, and thou shalt stand before me. And if thou take forth the precious from the vile, thou shalt be as my mouth. If you'll stop talking foolishly, then you'll continue the job. Let them return unto thee. Draw them to you, Jeremiah. Don't you get weak and and wishy-washy and conform over to the other side. I will make thee unto this people a fenced brazen wall. Understand, brass is is, uh, is another form of impregnability. The walls of a city are what secure the city. He's saying, Jeremiah, I will make you a wall of brass. And they will fight against you, but they will not prevail. 
For I am with you, Jeremiah, to save you, to deliver you, and I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked. I will redeem you out of the hand of the terrible. So what is God's response to Jeremiah? Repent, Jeremiah. You're wrong. Quit talking nonsense. Speak my words. Draw them unto me, Jeremiah. Don't you conform and weaken and become like them. If you do what I've called you to do, you will prevail. And by the way, this harsh response is consistent throughout Scripture. For example, when the Jews had gone into the promised land initially, they had a great victory at Jericho. Next, Joshua sent some scouts up to see what the city of Ai looked like. They were convinced, oh my goodness, if we conquered Jericho as easily as we did, we don't even need to really uh, spend much effort to go take Ai. But they got their fannies beat when they went. And Joshua was on his face, verse 6. And Joshua rent his clothes and he fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord. All day, he and the elders of Israel they had dust on their heads as mourning. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou brought us all, brought us uh, the people over Jordan to destroy us in the land of the Amorites? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns their back on their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of this, and it will encourage them, and they'll cut off your name from all the earth. In other words, we're about to lose this battle, God. The Lord said to, to, to Joshua, get up off the ground. Israel has sinned. You have transgressed my covenant, which I have commanded you to do. So here, Joshua, state of grieving, state of mourning. Lord, where are you? How did we lose this when, in fact, God doesn't comfort Joshua as much as he rebukes Joshua? It says, get back to obedience, get back to what I've called you to do. We see a similar situation in the New Testament. As I said a little while ago, John had got, excuse me, Peter had been greatly discouraged after the crucifixion, even after the resurrection, and he had seen Jesus in his glorified, resurrected body. And nevertheless, Peter was discouraged. He went back to the fishing business. Of course, one day after they'd been out fishing all night and had caught nothing, they see this man on the seashore, waves them over, and you know the story. They recognize that it's the Lord. They have fish for breakfast. And then Jesus has this very frank conversation with, with Peter says, I tell you the truth, when you were young, he said, here, here, Peter, here's what you're supposed to do. Get back to what I've called you to do. Feed my sheep, Peter. And then he goes on and tells him some more. This is not encouraging good news about his future. Peter, I tell you the truth, when you were young, you did what you wanted to do. You dressed yourself, you went where you wanted to go. But as you get older, you will wind up stretching out your hands, and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Nevertheless, Peter, follow me. Notice verse 19, we get some elaboration as to what God was talking about in that previous verse 18. Jesus said unto him, let him know that by what kind of death he would glorify God. In other words, Peter, one of these days you're going to be crucified on my behalf. Don't be discouraged that you, that you think you let me down. Get back to feeding my sheep. Do what I've called you to do. Follow me. By the way, when you're old, when you get done, uh, you're going to wind up being crucified like I was. Nevertheless, follow me. 
Well, Peter's first response was looking at some of the other guys there on the beach and said, what about this guy? Speaking to John. The Lord uh, said, uh, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what difference does that make to you? I'm going to make a statement here. We will come back to it many times over the next several weeks because we will get more into this passage of Scripture. He is the potter. We are the clay. The Lord calls us each and equips us each for different particular jobs. We all have, again, different gifts and calling, different callings of ministry. If I call John to not be martyred, but I wind up calling you to be martyred, what difference does that make to you, Peter? Do what I've called you to do. Follow me. What's the point here, ladies and gentlemen? Well, I'm going to elaborate here in just a moment. Verse 19, Therefore thus saith the Lord, If you repent, we read this moment ago, then I will bring thee again, and thou shalt stand before me. God told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, you're wrong in your thinking. Repent. Return to me. Do what I've called you to do. Quit speaking foolish words. Get back to the job I've called you to do. The Lord told Joshua, when they had been humbled at Ai, and Joshua was thinking that God had forsaken them, God told them, no, you repent. You get back to what I've called you to do. It was you that disobeyed me, not the other way around. We see Jeremiah here at a great time of depression, questioning whether God had abandoned him or even misled him. And God, rather than tenderly saying, oh, you poor thing, here, hop up on my lap, he rebuked him and said, repent, Jeremiah, do what I have called you to do. As we saw a moment ago, Jesus with Peter, what was the message? Peter, doesn't matter what happens to John, feed my sheep. You do what I've called you to do, Peter. I keep promising that one of these days I'm going to preach and teach through the book of Job. And I, I am. I continue to try to reflect on what we have been through as a people and a country over the last year. And then the lessons that I was forced to learn and am continuing to learn from the year preceding that during my battle with cancer. And I believe that I have been able to have a greater understanding during that period of time, uh, and I will share a little bit of that with you. You know, I think every one of us have at some point or another, if we're honest, said, God, why is this happening? Why, uh, why are the bad guys winning all the time? Uh, Lord, why? You know, Lord, if you would listen to me, I've got a better plan than the one you're currently carrying out. Obedience is a, and by the way, we're not the only ones that have asked, the whole book of Habakkuk deals with this. We've seen David cry out with the same question in the Psalms. The sons of Asaph cry out with the same question also recorded in the Psalms. We see Jeremiah making this very statement. By the way, Jeremiah is as high up the ladder of Old Testament Jewish prophets as there is. If you remember when Jesus asked his disciples, 
whom do men say that I am? Who do people think I am? The very first word out of the mouth was, some think that you're Jeremiah raised from the dead. So understand, Jeremiah was, was at the top of the ladder. And here was Jess, Jeremiah questioning God. Obedience is lesson number one that we all as believers have to learn. But submission is graduate level faith. If you remember briefly, again, I'm not preaching on Job. You're just getting bonus tonight. God made the observation himself when communicating with Satan in Job 1 and 2 that there is not a more upright man in all the earth. Logically, you would conclude that Job is doing things God's way. Therefore, Job is reaping the benefit of doing things God's way and and had all these blessings. And you know the story. He lost all of his possessions day one. Then he lost his health. Of course, um, you know, he, he loses everything that he had. And he was possibly the wealthiest man on the planet at that point in time. And his response was, I got to tell you, I would have failed at the first test. I don't know how you all would have managed, but Job, I think, did amazingly well. He said, naked I came out of the world, naked I came into the world, naked I'll go out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then he lost his health. And his response was, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Then his four friends showed up to encourage him somewhat. And obvious, his reputation was severely damaged because as they reasoned in their arguments trying to get Job to repent of this great unconfessed sin that he must have because obviously he is being chastised by God. So Job, just admit your wickedness and and repent and things will be okay. Well, you can obviously conclude that Job's stellar reputation as being a, uh, as, as God himself said, there is none more righteous than him in all the earth. His reputation had been damaged. He was suffering to the point that even his wife, and I don't believe that this was, you know, at one time I thought that maybe she was just not very mature in her faith. When she said, honey, why don't you just curse God and die? I don't think that she was shaken in her faith. I think she just didn't want to see her husband suffer anymore. I'm saying, Lord, just take him home. Job, honey, I love you. I'll miss you, but I don't want to see you go through this. Just When you get through chapter after chapter of Job's friends making these logical accusations that, Job, you obviously have some sin you're not telling us about. Understand, but you better just repent of it now and and get things right. And Job continued to defend himself, saying, no, I, I, I haven't done anything. Finally, Job continued to go from, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Naked I came into the world, naked I go out of the world. And you all that have experienced pain or suffering for any period of time know that you eventually can become worn down. It's like waves up on the seashore. Eventually, you get to the point where I just can't take it anymore. And Job got to the point where he defended himself. And even accused God of not being fair to him. 
said, God is wrong on this. I haven't, make it, I haven't gone and picked a fight with God. God's picked a fight on me. He's picking on me. God says in chapter 38, again, this is not tender. Oh, honey, get up on my lap. Let me console you. He said this, get up, Job. Cinch up your belt tight because I'm getting ready to dress you down. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you that I want you to answer. Where were you, Job, when I created everything? I don't remember asking you for your instruction when I created the the earth and the other planets and the stars. Where were you when I laid the foundation there? Tell me if you know so much. Who determines its dimensions? Who stretched out the surveying line? Who supports its foundation? Who lays its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Again, it goes on for several chapters here, but it's not that. Get up on my lap, honey, and let me console you. And at the end of the day, God never gives Job an explanation. But Job is reminded that God is God. And Job isn't. He is the potter, and we are the clay. Now, knowing the right answers is step one. Obeying, obedience, as I said a few minutes ago, is step two. But then, trusting God for the outcome. Submission is graduate-level faith. You heard me a couple of weeks ago. I made the comment trying to balance between Martha and Mary. You know what? There's a point where we've done all the work that we can do or know how to do. And then at that point, you just have to trust God for the results. You can't just sit back on your backside and not work. That's not what we're commanded to do. There is cause and effect. We have been called to go and do. However, once we've done it, We've got to rest in God. Just like Jesus in Gethsemane prayed, Father, if there be some other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Job responded after his dressing down and said, I know that you can do anything. And no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with, with such ignorance? It is I. I was talking about things that I didn't know anything about. Things far too wonderful for me, God. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have really seen you up close and personally, Lord. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. The Apostle Paul wrote the letter to Philippi while he was in prison. And here Paul is in prison, and he is telling them, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord when... Let me remind you, if you missed it the first time, rejoice. There's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is based on our 
temporal conditions. When OSU wins, I'm happy, which means I'm never happy. Um, when you get a tax refund, you're happy. When the waiter sets a big 16-ounce ribeye steak down in front of you, you're happy. Forty-five minutes later, when he sets the bill down in front of you, you're unhappy. Your happiness is based upon the circumstances. Joy is an attribute born in us by the Holy Spirit. It's a present realization that we can trust in the Lord, that His work is finished, that we are in His mind already seated in the heavenlies with Him. As a result of that consideration, Paul tells them to always rejoice. So you're not always happy. I'm not really happy about my condition in prison. Nevertheless, I can rejoice in my relationship with the Lord. I can rejoice and trust Him and His precious promises. Let your manner of living be an example unto other men. The Lord's coming soon. And by the way, I would remind all of us of that very thing. When you see everything that's going on around us right now, as you've heard me say many times, I'll say it many times again, there has to be a terminal generation of Christians that's alive leading up to the rapture of the church. Now, again, I can't tell you whether the rapture of the church is five minutes away or five years away or 15 years away, but when I see everything happening as is both first spelled out pointing to Christ's second coming. Not, there's a difference between the rapture and the second coming. The rapture is when we're caught up to be with the Lord in the air. The second coming is when He comes back at Armageddon as King of Kings and takes control of planet Earth again. There's a lot pointing to His second coming, but not the rapture. We just know that that will precede it by seven years. But as we th- see things working in the Middle East, even as they are today, quite frankly, even with President Trump now not being in office and the tenuous relationship with Iran once again and the possible reaffirmation of that terrible Iran deal that the former president had gotten us involved in, empowering them towards nuclear capabilities. Boy, it sure seems like the Lord is coming soon. So we can be encouraged by that. Don't worry about anything. You know what? We all worry. It's just in our nature. But the reality is, what good does worrying do? If worrying actually resolved anything or helped anything, it might be worth doing. But the reality is, All it does is make a bad situation worse. Be full of care. Don't worry about anything. Instead, with prayer and pleading, and also think back at how many times the Lord has blessed you and brought you through tough situations. Count your blessings. Then let your requests be made known to God. At that point, Peace of God, which passeth all human understanding, should keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Here's the peace of God. This is what I concluded after my vacation at MD Anderson. 
The peace of God is being able to rest in Him regardless of what happens. There are several accounts where we see Paul in prison, and we see many times Paul was released from prison, and we say, praise the Lord. Look at how good God is. Boy, He is in control. Look at that. There was Paul in prison. Now he's out of prison. There was also a time where Paul was in prison, and his release from prison wasn't through the front gate. It was through the executioner's sword or axe as he was beheaded. Well, guess what? Even then, God is still good. God is still in control. And when we can, and I'm not saying I'm there yet. Let me tell you what. I don't know if I'll ever get there. I don't know if any of us will get there. But that's the point. When we actually get to the point where we work in obedience as diligently as we can, doing what God has called us to do, and then can rest and saying, nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but thine be done, that gives us the peace of God that is not as man wants or as man would design, beyond human understanding. Submission is the hardest lesson to learn. Chapter 16, the word of the Lord came also unto me saying, Whew, you know what? You, I use PowerPoints visually. You were visual learners. The Old Testament prophets didn't have PowerPoints. God called them to do unusual things at times in order to make a point. Remember Ezekiel laid on his side for a total of 430 days to make a point. He had that little clay model of the city of Jerusalem out, and he cut his beard off, put a third of the hair in the, in the clay model, a third of it he put inside his garment, a third of it threw it in the wind, it blew away, and he preached a message from that. Hosea was called to marry a prostitute and have children through that prostitute as a lesson to Judah of their infidelity to him. We see uh, Ezekiel's wife actually died, and Ezekiel was commanded, don't mourn for her. This is going to be a lesson to those that are with you that I am going to judge my people, yet you deserve this. This is coming. Just deal with it. Here, Jeremiah is told not to take a wife. Now, are wives a good thing? I was waiting for somebody to answer. <laughs> yeah, at times. <laughs> of course they are. We know that God stopped after creating Adam and made the observations that it's not good that a man should be alone. I'm going to give him exactly what I want him to have. And, of course, we see Eve created and rejoined to, uh, to Adam. I say rejoined because she was created out of a rib from his side. Uh, the book of Proverbs tells us that we are to rejoice with the wife of our youth. The book of Proverbs says that he that findeth a wife hath a good thing. But we also know that Paul talked about for his particular situation in 1 Corinthians 7, it was good for him that he was single. 
because he didn't have the cares of taking, for a, taking care of a wife, taking care of his children. As a single man, he was able to just be married to the Lord and go on mission work nonstop. So there are times in certain situations where it may actually be a benefit as it was here to Jeremiah. But understand, especially for a Jew, this was tough, tough uh, counsel. I mean, every Jewish man wanted to have a wife and wanted to have a family and raise up sons and daughters. So the idea of spending your life single and not being able to enjoy family was, was, was a harsh, uh, a bitter pill for Jeremiah to swallow. But God has his reasons. Verse 3, For thus saith the Lord concerning the sons and concerning the daughters that are born here in Jerusalem and in Judah and concerning the mothers that bear them and concerning their fathers that begat them in this land. They're all going to die terrible deaths. And nobody's going to be there to mourn over them. In fact, nobody's going to be there to bury them. Their dead bodies are going to be strung out or, or just as, as dung upon the face of the earth. And they shall be consumed by the sword of the Babylonian army or by famine as they starve to death inside the walls of Jerusalem. And their carcasses are wind up being food for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. So, Jeremiah, I'm doing you a favor. I don't want you to get married and have children because this is certain judgment that's coming upon Judah. For thus saith the Lord, enter not into the house of mourning, neither go to lament nor bemoan for them. Here's the point of this whole passage, the B part of verse 5. Uh, God says, I have taken away my peace from this people. I have taken away my loving kindness. I've had it up to here. I'm taking away my mercy. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They'll not be buried. Neither shall there be anybody there to mourn over them. Neither shall men tear themselves in mourning to comfort them for the dead. Neither shall there be men to give them a cup of consolation to drink for their father or for their mother. Thou shalt also, not only will there be nobody there to bury them, but there shall be no more merriment in the land. No more weddings. No more celebrating. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will cause to cease out. Uh, to cease out of this place in your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth. What are some of the times of celebration? Weddings, again, were a great time of celebration. Voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride. By the way, Jeremiah is told, Jeremiah, you are going to live through all this. You're going to see all this happen in your lifetime. It's coming to pass that quickly. And it shall come to pass that when thou shalt show this people all these words, they shall say unto thee, Lord, why are you doing this to us? What have we done? What is our sin we've committed against the God of Israel? And here's what you're going to tell them. Because your fathers have forsaken me, saith the Lord, and they have walked after other gods. You all heard last Sunday we talked about the, the, Jewish, the Hebrew word halak and halakha. That's what this word is. They have walked after other gods. They have served them. They have worshipped them. They have forsaken me, and they have not kept my law. In fact, this generation is even worse than their fathers. For behold, you walk unto everyone after the imagination of his own evil heart, and you will not hearken unto me. Therefore, I will cast you out of this land into a land that you don't know, neither ye nor your fathers. And there shall you serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor. The point is, listen, you're here in the promised land, 
After I brought you here, after I brought your forefathers across the Red Sea, after I gave you this place, chased out all the Amorites and the Canaanites before you, I've given you this. If you want to worship gods of Babylon, well, guess what? I'll take you to Babylon, and you can worship those gods there in the land. By the way, in this culture, in this mindset, they associated gods with real estate, particular area of land. So there were gods of Babylon, and there were gods of Assyria, and there were gods of Egypt, and there was the God of Israel. And in their mentality, whoever's God was stronger won the battles. Well, I'm going to take you off. I'm going to take you out of my land since you don't want to worship me, and I'll put you in Babylon. You can worship those pagan gods all you want to. We'll see how you like it then. Verse 14, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth that brought up all the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whither he had driven them, and I will bring them again into the land that I gave unto their fathers. Now, in the midst of this bad news that Jeremiah is delivering, God throws them a, a rainbow, a, a reminder of his promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he is, in fact, going to keep his promises and keep his covenant promises. The Jews, as we have studied, you go throughout the Old Testament, and time and again, God says, I am the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the God that brought you through the Red Sea. I am the God. No, that was the standard. Well, the Lord is speaking through Jeremiah to the people saying, you're no longer going to remember me for that because I'm going to do something better. I'm going to bring you out. Now, here's the point. As you look at this, this is still yet future. Let me just give you something to, 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 to consider. After 70 years in captivity, in accordance to Isaiah chapter 45, there was a specific prophecy that said King Cyrus would release the Jews to return to the land. Well, that was brought to King Cyrus's attention believed it to be true, and he did, in fact, release, with his permission, Zerubbabel to lead as many Jews as wanted to go back to the promised land. They were given permission to go back, and they were given all the temple treasures to take back with them. They also were allowed to take up a contribution from all the Jews to help support their trip, and then he even chipped in on the money to enable them to go back. And with all of that opportunity given to them, if you read in the book of Ezra, less than 50,000 returned initially with that first aliyah back to the land. Now, let me ask you, what's more impressive? Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet, saying, you're not going anywhere, Moses. And God pouring out ten specific plagues, one-upping ten specific gods of Egypt, proving that He is God, He is the one true God, bringing them through the Red Sea on dry land, chasing out the Canaanites, a more powerful people, which was acknowledged in Joshua 1, or excuse me, in Numbers 1, and giving them this land. Is that more impressive, or is King Cyrus giving them permission to go, giving them the money to go, 
and providing them the means to return. And then the first scenario, you had two million Jews leaving Egypt against Pharaoh's will through the Red Sea. In the latter, you had 50,000 Jews or less than 50,000 returning with King Cyrus's permission, blessing, and finances. Which to you is more impressive? The first one. So how was that release 70 years after captivity by Cyrus more impressive than God's deliverance from Egypt? Well, it wasn't. But what God is in the process of doing right now is after 2,000 years of not having a place to call home, the Jews never assimilated into other nations. Where are the Amorites today? Don't exist. Their country, their borders were crushed. They ceased to exist as a parcel of real estate. And the Amorites were assimilated into other cultures and other countries. Where are the... Um, Moabites today, thank you. They're gone, same thing. They've been assimilated into other countries. But 2,000 years from 70 A.D. until May the 14th, 1948, there was no Israel. But God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that on this specific piece of real estate, I'm giving it to you. And one day, this is going to be the capital of the world. And one day, all the nations of the world are going to come here to worship in Jerusalem. After 2,000 years, without having a place to call home, the Jews never lost their identity. It's part of the reason, in God's grand wisdom, of all the kosher laws. The Jews never assimilated. They were always a distinct people, even living in other nations. They were not Jewish Americans. They were American Jews. They never lost their identity. And again, after 2,000 years without a place to call home, miraculously, David Ben-Gurion stood there in Tel Aviv with a short window of opportunity. Because if you read the story, they were rushing to get this all done before Shabbat. And they had a brief window before the UN was going to step in and close the whole thing down. But they declared their independence. Quoted Ezekiel 36, and Israel was, in fact, born in a day. And we still see Jews scattered everywhere. But over the course of this upcoming period of time that we refer to as the seven years of the 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation, that seven-year period of time, God will complete His work of bringing His people back to His real estate. And at the end of the day, after Armageddon, King Jesus will be ruling and reigning on the throne of his father, David. And all the nations of the world will be, Israel, Israel will be the lighthouse to all the Gentile nations as God had called them to begin with. That is what verse 15 is referencing. That one-ups their exodus from captivity in Egypt, does it not? Verse 16, Behold, I will send for many fishers. Now back to their day. God throws out this nugget. Don't worry, I'm going to keep my promises. It still has a happy ending at the end of the day. But in the meantime, I will send many fishers, saith the Lord, and they shall fish for them. 
And after I will send, after I will send many hunters, as I will hunt them from every mountain, every hill, out of the holes, out of the rocks. What's being said here is you Jews, there's going to be no place to hide. You're going to try to hide. Don't, you can't. God's going to fish them out. Who's he going to use? The Babylonian invading army. He's going to use nets. He's going to fish them out. Wherever they may hide in the cave, they're going to be found. For mine eyes are upon all their ways, and they are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. And first, I will recompense their iniquity for their sin double. Now, folks, that does not mean that God is not fair, that he's paying two for one. What that reference actually means, as you guys are familiar with this, if the, if the waiter puts the check down on the table, you owe this. Well, you've heard the expression, I'll cover the tab. You heard that expression, or am I the only one? I'll cover the check. I'll cover the tab. What does that mean? Here's the bill. Here's what's aid owed. Oh, here's my credit card to pay for it. Here's the money to cover the debt. Here's the debt that's owed. It's going to be paid in full. Everything that you have got coming to you for your disobedience, guess what? You're going to pay for it because they have defiled my land and they have filled mine inheritance, God speaking of his land, with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable things, talking about their idols and everything associated with idol worship. O oh Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction. Now here's Jeremiah. Look where he's come. Oh, Yahweh. Yad Vaves. See all caps there. My strength. Lord, you are my strength. Lord, you are my Masada. You are my fortress. You are my refuge in the day of affliction. He is affirming God's promises. The Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and shall say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies and vanity and things wherein there is no profit. They'll ask the question, Shall a man make gods unto himself? They aren't gods. In other words, did God create man or is it up to us to create gods that we worship? God created man. Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. Finally and forever, I will establish my truth, God's saying. I will cause them to know mine hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is Yahweh. Yad, hey, vav, hey. As we wrap this up, remember, God had brought them out of Egypt, put them right in the middle of the Gentile world. It's where Israel's located. It's at a crossroads. You've got Africa, Ethiopia, Egypt, down to the southwest. You've got the Arabian Peninsula down to the southeast. You've got Mesopotamia, the Near East and the Far East. You've got Europe and Asia to the north and to the west. Israel was at a crossroads. And God had brought them out and placed them there. They were to be a kingdom of priests, worshiping the one true God of all creation. They were to be a holy nation, drawing the Gentile world unto the truth. But instead, once they got there, they began cheating on God. They began worshiping all these false gods of the idol-worshiping nations. And because of that, God judged them severely. But at the end, Israel will fulfill God's promises and calling. And they will be the capital of the world, and all the Gentile nations will come and honor and serve and worship the seed of David, 
whom the world knows of Jesus of Nazareth. We know Jesus, the Messiah, the eternal Son of the living God, who will one day literally rule and reign for a thousand years in righteousness, and we will rule and reign with Him. I cannot even begin to imagine what that will be like. But by the way, that is not eternity. Eternity is still yet future. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, then eternity. This will be uh, a time of righteous worship. The Jews call it the age of the Messiah. I believe this fits in perfectly. The seventh millennium, we have just as there were six days of creation and God rested on the seventh, I believe that there are 6,000 years of, of world and human history. And the age of the Messiah, what we call the millennial reign of Christ, will be that seventh uh, age. And I can promise you there will be no Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer anywhere in the advisory council at that point in time. Let's pray.